Hi, and welcome to the Growing Book Club. 12 books, one year, new you. I am your host, Sarah Herring, and I am so excited to go on this personal growth journey with you. Happy reading, my friends. Another week of book club. This is so exciting. This is officially week two of the Growing Book Club reading Wired That Way by Marisha Latower. And I just am so grateful again for everyone that's participating. If you're new on this podcast, again, welcome. We are so excited to have you and go on this journey of personal growth and development together. I hope that everyone is enjoying the book Wired That Way so far and that you all were able to take the personality assessment. Um, If you have not taken that yet, I, again, would strongly encourage you to go back and read that. That is on page from page 269 to 273 that breaks down your personality, whether you are primarily a sanguine, choleric, melancholy, or phlegmatic. As a reminder, you can, everyone is different. You can be a mixture of one or two personalities. It's very common to have a primary and secondary personality. So keep that in mind as you are continuing to read and study this book that this is going to be the best way to help you in understanding your personality. And again, if you have people in your life that you're close to that you want to extend the invite to take this personality assessment as well, it never hurts. It's a great way to be able to fill people's needs and and figure out how people tick, which is actually a big part of what we're going to talk about today. One other quick reminder, as we're going into the reading of this week, remember that each personality has their own strengths and weaknesses. We want to be able to talk about the weaknesses so that we can address them, but our focus is going to be on the strengths. So remember that. Maybe you just took the test and you came back at a personality that you're surprised about or that you were not expecting. Maybe the personality that you came back for, that is that perfectly describes you and you're really excited about it. Whatever those results were, just remember that we have these resources in this book, Wired That Way, to help us break down our personalities, but also, again, focus on developing our strengths. As a brief overview for today, we are going to be covering chapters 5 through 10. I'm going to be bouncing back and forth a little bit, so I apologize in advance on that, but after rereading this book, again, I felt like that would probably be the easiest way to direct all of this. I really want to stress today on emotional needs of each personality because as we move on and read chapters 6 through 10, reading chapter 5 on emotional needs is really going to be a basic guideline for us in knowing how to not only take care of our own emotional needs, but the needs of others. After we go through chapter 5 with emotional needs, we're going to skip over to chapter 8 on communication. I think that these two chapters really go beautifully hand in hand. And then after we cover those two, we're going to talk about chapters 7, 9, and 10. We're actually going to skip this week chapter 6 on marriage. And I'm not going to tell you why today, 
but it's a surprise and you'll find out next week. So be aware that next week we're going to chat more about marriage and uh, relationships. So be aware going into next week, that's when we're going to be talking more about chapter six with marriage or personal relationships because of the activity I basically have planned out. So I'm not going to give out any hints. Just wait for the podcast next week. Chapter seven is going to talk about parenting. That is not my expertise since I don't have kids. So I'm really going to rely heavily on the book for that. And as a parent, you just pick and choose what you feel like matters to you there. Chapter nine is talking about workplace communication. And chapter 10 is actually spiritual life. So there's a lot of content we're going to cover. But like I said, I mainly want to keep our focus on chapter five and chapter eight. And then we're going to skim over the other chapters with chapter six coming next week. Outside of the personality assessment, I personally feel that page 84, discussing emotional needs and leading into chapter 5, is probably the most important page in this entire book. The reason that this was such a game changer for me really came actually down to when I read this page because previously we talked about breaking down each personality but when we start to understand understand emotional needs of people, that's when the real growth and change begins to happen. So on page um, 108 in chapter 5 about emotional needs, it says, even though you may not be conscious that you even have emotional needs, those needs are at the core of your being. They are not just wants or desires, but they are also hardwired into who you are. And if those needs are not met in healthy ways, you will seek to have them met in other ways. As we review the emotional needs of each personality, think of the people with whom you interact day in and day out. Also, think about your own personality, both your primary personality and your secondary one. What do you need? Are you getting those needs met in a healthy way? If not, what changes can you make in your life so that you will have those needs met? Going back to page 84, we have the emotional needs of each personality. The emotional needs of the popular sanguine is attention, affection, approval, and acceptance. The emotional needs of the powerful choleric, loyalty, sense of control, credit for good work, and achievement. For the peaceful phlegmatic, peace and quiet, feeling of self-worth, lack of respect, or excuse me, lack of stress, and fourth, respect. And then lastly, for the perfect melancholies, sensitivity, support, space, and silence. Now, I want to go back to the introduction, chapter one, and I'm going to read this first page for you. Have you ever noticed that there are people out there who are different from you? Perhaps you live with them. Maybe you work with them. But chances are that you have noticed differences and you have wished that you could change those people. You may have even gone so far as to try to quote-unquote fix them by suggesting that their way of thinking, attitude, and approach to life should be more like your own. But these attempts usually end in, in frustration. Those people's differences just seem to be hardwired into their personality. As you think about those people whom you have tried to change... I want you to consider Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. 
I love how this verse is presented in three parts. The first part says, if it is possible, it is this, it is as if God is giving us a disclaimer, as if he is saying that this is the goal we should try to reach. The second part says, so far as it depends on you, making this our individual responsibility to the last part, be at peace with everyone. If this verse simply said, be at peace with everyone, it would be impossible for us to live out this teaching. We all have had situations with people in which we have tried everything we know how to do to get along with them, but nothing seems to work. No matter how hard we try, we cannot change those individuals. However, as this verse in Romans suggests, we can change ourselves. We can grow and improve. We can also change our approach to others so that we can, so far as it depends on us, be at peace with everyone. Once we give up trying to change the people in our life and accept that they are just wired that way, we can begin to understand others and improve our relationships with them. Likewise, when we are able to grasp the way we are wired, we can use that knowledge to grow beyond our natural tendencies and become better and more balanced individuals. I love these first few paragraphs of this book as a segue into chapter five, Emotional Needs, because Again, we cannot change others around us, but we can change ourselves and we can find ways to help others in living out their strengths. And so as we move forward today, I think it's, again, important to really study that that chart on page 84 with the emotional needs because it's really going to help you in learning how to relate to other people and fill other people's emotional needs. I also love how on page 127, Marisha says, when you understand the way that you are wired, you can begin to understand and meet the emotional needs that are built into each personality. Just as air, food, and water are essential to your physical well-being, these needs are essential to your emotional wellness. And remember, these are not wants, they are needs. And that's really, really, really critical to emphasize as we begin breaking down each of these personalities. Let's start with the sanguine. Attention. Um, Marisha says, for us popular sanguines, one of our greatest fears is being normal and blending in. We like attention and we wanna be noticed. That is why we dress the way we do and we talk with loud voices. We want attention. She says, if popular sanguines do not get attention in ways that are healthy, they will get it in other ways, perhaps even destructive ways. Marisha goes on to tell this story about how when she was a child, she would just sit and talk to her mom all day about different books. And she would go on and retell the story about the book that they had just read previously. And she said that even though her mom knew that book by heart because of how many times she had read it, how many times she had heard Marisha share the story about the book, she still took the time to listen. And so sanguines really, they want to be noticed. Um, she says on page 110, comment on their clothes, laugh at their jokes, and let them tell you the long version. If you make a habit of this, they will be very forgiving when you tell them you don't have time to listen to them due to a pressing deadline. They'll already know that you really do like them. So that's really important with sanguines is, is taking the time to listen to the things that are really important with them. They want to be heard. They want to be noticed, right? And so it, I love how she she points that out at the very end too, right? That if, if you're taking the time and you make it a habit to listen to people, even if it takes you maybe an, ex, an extra 10, 15 minutes out of your day, you are going to make a mark on that sanguine and their needs are going to be met emotionally. She also goes into affection and approval. Popular sanguines want to be loved. 
This is the root of their touchy-feely body language. If you do not hug them, they will reach out and hug you. If affection is not found in healthy realms, popular sanguines will find it elsewhere. It is not that they intentionally determine to make poor choices in order to fill this need, but because these emotional needs are hardwired, popular sanguines will subconsciously do what they can to get them met. Popular sanguines will sell their souls for a cuddle. Uh, she says that a secondary aspect of affection is approval. Popular sanguines do not want to do anything specific like work to get people's approval. They just want people to touch them, hug them, and tell them that they are wonderful. So I don't know if you've been in a situation like this before, but I know that for me, the sanguines in my life, they're the first people to go in and hug you and they're just so excited and they want to feel that warmth from you. They want to know that you reciprocate that affection, that you're going to give them back a hug. And that's a way for them to know that, look, you approve of me because you gave me a hug or maybe it's, you know, somebody that gave you a handshake. They just want to know that you are the center of their affection. Acceptance. Most of us who are popular sanguines have people in our lives who are always trying to fix us, shape us, shape us up and make us better. But instead of always having people make plans for our lives, what we really need is for them to accept us as we are. The interesting thing is that once people quit trying to remake us and give us the praise and approval we crave, we are much more likely to want to make them happy and to change. But first, we need to feel accepted. I, Marisha tells a story in this book, and I think a lot of us might be able to relate. Growing up in elementary school, those kids that uh, maybe were the class clown or the people that were maybe a little bit more loud, they want to know that regardless of what they do um, or what they say, that you are going to still love them, that you're not going to try, try to constantly fix them, that you're able to say, look, this is, they might be a little bit unorganized, but I'm going to let them live in that chaos and they can still know that I love them and I care about them. Now, not justifying that that's okay, <laughs> But that is how sanguines are often wired. Moving on to cholerics. Starting with loyalty, Marisha says powerful cholerics are natural leaders. They will go to the wall for those who are on their team. However, because they are on the front lines, if they look back and see that anyone whom they thought was with them has backed off, they will feel betrayed and as a result may completely sever the relationship. This is something I personally have dealt with a lot as a choleric. I am that person that I want people on my side. I want people as, uh, on my team. And she she says that the powerful cleric's focus is external and they see the big picture. Because of their need to see things grow and progress, the best way to show them loyalty is to give them your active support. And so maybe you don't necessarily agree, agree with an opinion or a thought or a decision that a cleric makes, but as long as they know that you are loyal and true to them and that, 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 that you have their back, you will go a million miles an hour with, with, a, with, a, with a powerful cleric. She says, it drives powerful clerics crazy when other people don't seem to see what needs to be done. That's another thing that's really important as well. So if you are in a relationship with a powerful cleric, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Clerics want to know that they have a worker buddy right next to them that, that's going to go all the way and that cares about their vision and dream just as much as they do. Biggest one, I think, for clerics here is a sense of control. Control is one of the biggest issues for a powerful cleric. This innate need for control is clear when they are children. 
My powerful cleric sister nursery school teacher told my mother, I, I never have to worry if I miss a day. I know Lauren can take over for me. And this is really important for clerics. They, clerics need to have a sense of control in their life. This could be with a child. This could be with a spouse. Clerics need to have things that they can take care of and that they know is theirs. When clerics start to feel out of control, that's when they start to live in their weaknesses. Another emotional need, credit for good work. Because powerful clerics are the worker bees of life, they will work harder longer and faster than anyone else they are willing to do it all but they need acknowledgement for all the work they do even if it made more work for others they like top billing and will be wounded if their work goes unnoticed so this is really really important if a cleric leads a project and they will full willingly volunteer do whatever it takes make this activity to help you a priority in their schedule. However, if you don't thank them, if you don't acknowledge them, if you don't give them credit for what they did, you can go back to the beginning of loyalty, right? That that cleric probably will not be on your side in the future. The last emotional need of a cleric is achievement. Clerics are extremely task-driven. If you need something to get done, go find a cleric. As she says, as water is to a fish, so achievement is to a powerful cleric. Powerful clerics cannot live without achievement in their life. At the end of a day, powerful clerics will recite their accomplishments either in their head for a self-pat on the back or to the people around them so that they can receive that needed way to go. You can bet that with clerics, they'll probably do 50 things and they're proud of themselves. They, 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 they take pride in the fact that they're involved in a million and a half things they want to know that what, they, what they're doing with that, again, matters. And so if you live with a cleric or you interact with a cleric, taking that time to express how proud you are of them or of, of the, their achievements and the things that they're accomplishing is very important. Melancholies. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty on this one and share more out of personal experience and what I've learned from being married to a perfect melancholy and... Taylor's emotional needs. Marisha talks as the first one is sensitivity. And what I've seen and what that means to me is that melancholies feel very deeply. They're often realists and they just want your sensitivity. They want you to listen to them and know that what they're feeling matters. I have found personally that there's been a lot of times where I've just tried to see the positive on life all the time and just cheer up. There's, you know, good coming. And regardless of this situation, you can still see the good in life. And while there's so much power in that, sometimes my husband just needs me to say, wow, that really stinks. That really sucks that you're going through that right now. They really, I've seen in different situations, Taylor just wants to know that I care about his emotions and that is actually a beautiful gift that I've seen in a lot of melancholies is because they 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 feel emotions deeper, they are actually able to connect with a lot of people on a more deep level than many sanguines are able to. Um, Marisha talked about this story in this book, how she had an interaction with her husband, who's a, who's a melancholy, and she stepped outside of her natural response, slowed down, sat down, and focused on him. She listened to the story that he was expressing and why he was sad about um, a job transition. And because of that, she was able to connect with him on a deeper level. 
Marisha says that when it comes to being sensitive, think through that person's thoughts and feelings before you respond with the perfect melancholy. Timing is everything. Think before you speak and only speak what is appropriate at the time. Support. Uh, She says, think of the perfect melancholy as a bridge. Without the supports underneath it, the bridge would fall down. In the same way, without the support of people who care, perfect melancholy individuals feel let down and then they fall apart. So it's really important that if, if you have a melancholy friend, spouse, coworker, whoever it is in your life, that you take the time to let them know that you are there for them, regardless of what they are going through. The next one, space. Oh my goodness, I have learned so much from space. This one's been probably the most challenging emotional need for me to fill for my husband, Taylor. Uh, Melancholies literally need physical space away from people to be able to decompress. Marisha tells this story. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. She says, after attending personality training, Andrea found out that one of the emotional needs of perfect melancholies is space. When she thought about the layout of her house, she realized that her perfect melancholy husband did not have a space that was all his. So he decided. So she decided to move her projects and the children's things from the office they all shared to somewhere else in the house. When she, she decided that this was a small sacrifice that she was willing to make for her husband. When she offered the office space to him, she immediately saw the relief on his face. Just the thought of having space to himself that he could organize, sit in alone, and decorate as he chose turned him into a different and more relaxed person. I thought that one was very interesting because they need, melancholies often need mental space from things, but literally they also need physical space away from from people as well to be able to, to recharge. And then the last one is silence. Silence is really important, just having quiet and doing nothing and it's okay um another gal that she shares a story about in this one talks about how she's learned that her husband when he needs silence she just goes and calls one of her other sanguine friends and she's able to fill that that tank for her but if you're a sanguine out there and you live with a melancholy or are friends with a melancholy just know do not take it personally if if this individual needs some silence that's okay And I know for me, my anxiety levels spike up when it's quiet, but that's what my husband needs sometimes. And I'm willing to do that because it's important to him. To end with our last personality, phlegmatics. Phlegmatics need peace and quiet. They need to know that everything is okay around them. And they often discover that peace in silence. So very similar to melancholies, but literally having that, quiet is what creates peace. I'm going to read the next emotional need, feeling of self-worth. She says, if you are living or working with a peaceful phlegmatic and you do not share this personality, the following illustration may help you understand why a feeling of self-worth is so important for that person. Picture four children in a family, each having one of the four differing personalities. The popular sanguine child goes to school. When he comes home, he announces as my nephew once did, I am the most popular kid in my class. In my school, they will not have a party without checking with me first because they know that if I can't come, it will not be any fun. Now, for a child like that, his parents must give him the attention and approval that popular sanguines need. They need to tell him, everybody does love you. You are the most popular kid in school. 
Then you have the powerful choleric child. She comes home from school and says, guess what, mom? The teacher made me the room monitor. What should mom say? They picked the right one. You have great leadership potential. You will probably be the president of the United States someday. The perfect melancholy child is, of course, the perfect child. He makes his bed before he goes to school in the morning, like my little brother Fred always did, and then goes off to school where his teacher says, my job as a teacher would be so much easier if all my students were just like you. The perfect melancholy child comes home and does his homework like he is supposed to. His mom says, you are the perfect child. I wish all my children were just like you. Then you have the peaceful phlegmatic child. She did not make her bed before she left for school, didn't clean up her toys, and didn't get voted anything at school. She comes home and heads straight for the refrigerator and then the television. You have to nag her to do her homework. This child is likely to grow up to be the person who has fallen through the cracks her entire life. For this type of child, her parents will need to instill in her a sense of self-worth. Otherwise, she may fail to receive it in her life. She will need to feel like her parents value her, not for what she does or for what she produces, but simply because of who she is. This was extremely powerful for me, especially reading this as a choleric. I think that this story perfectly represents, again, why phlegmatics need a feeling of self-worth. They want to know that they matter. They want to know that if they don't accomplish as much as the choleric or if their bedroom isn't as tidy as the melancholy or if they're not as as popular as the sanguine, that they still matter. And I think what's beautiful about this story is that if if you live with a, a phlegmatic or no a phlegmatic, they have some of the most beautiful, consistent personality strengths that if you are able to speak life into them and speak life over them, they are going to make a significant impact on the world around them. Phlegmatics also need a lack of stress. They want to keep the peace. They do not want to be a burden. And so if there's conflict going on, if there's something that's really overwhelming, phlegmatics emotionally need to be able to step back so that they can process everything and then move forward with the the situation at hand. Lastly, phlegmatics also need a sense of respect. They need to know, again, that they just... They're given respect because of who they are, not from what they do. Marisha says, so how can those of us who are more driven show respect to the peaceful phlegmatic? By setting aside our agenda and doing something that we know is important to that person. This might mean simply sitting on the sofa with the peaceful phlegmatic without multitasking and watching a ball game in which we have no interest. It could mean carving out time from our schedule to sit down and watch a movie. It is not complicated, but for those of us who are not peaceful phlegmatics, we need to be reminded of this. When you're with a phlegmatic, their emotional tank will be fill if you just sit and be. If they know that with all the other things that need to be done around them, that they're a priority, they will feel respected. Now, looking back at all of these different personalities, We've been able to see, as Marisha would describe on page 127, when you understand the way that you are wired, you can begin to understand and meet the emotional needs that are built into each personality. Just as air, food, and water are essential to your physical well-being, these needs are essential to your emotional wellness. And remember, these are not wants, they are needs. So if you are interacting with someone right now that there's conflict with or People aren't doing something the way that you would want it to be done. 
maybe look deeper and say, this need is not being met. This is why this person is acting this way. I love this chapter. Again, we went into some really specific stuff here. I think it's also important to go through the emotional wellness checklist because these are some important things to note that if you see, these, these are common trends that if, if people are often acting this way, it's because their emotional needs are not being met. The emotional wellness checklist for sanguines, uh, if their emotional needs are not being met, excessive compulsive talking, they'll use sex as a replacement for affection, they're overextended with too many activities, or they eat too many sweets to medicate their pain. With the powerful cholerics, if their needs aren't being met, they'll overstep boundaries, usurp authority, they're all, they will argue every single point and feel that they are never wrong, they'll need credit for everything that they do or have fits of rage. For phlegmatics, compulsive lying, checked out with the lights on, nobody home mentality, they'll have physical illness or pain, or they'll become passive which means they'll often be easily bullied or abused. And then lastly, with the melan- with melancholies, obsessive worry or fear, overly sensitive, reclusive behavior, or eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia to compensate for perfectionism. So keep those things in mind. Those are often triggers that if you see somebody acting out, those are that's a good source to go back to and then check, okay, what is this person's emotional needs? I love how on page 130, Marisha talks about how if you're somebody that is in an emotionally depleted stage or you know somebody else who is, give people a chance because they can back bounce back. Give yourself grace, recognizing that when, you, she says, when you become aware that these person, personality extremes are manifesting in your life, allow that to be a red flag to you, telling you something needs adjustment. Then look at your life to see where the issues are coming from and which of your emotional needs are not being met. Once you see where the problem lies, you can take steps to correct the problem. She says it's vital that we take responsibility for our well-being, that we take stock of our lives to see whether our needs are being met. If we don't, we abdicate the responsibility to those around us. And when we leave our emotional health in the care of those around us, we run the risk of becoming victims. What a powerful line. Do not become a victim because you're not taking care of yourself. Choose to emotionally, mentally, physically take care of yourself so that you can be the best version of you and live in your strengths when you start to interact with others around you. Skipping ahead to chapter eight on communication, Marisha says, as we have seen, our personality impacts virtually every aspect of our lives, including our communication with other people. Every day we communicate with others. It may be the people at work, the teller at the bank, the server at the restaurant, or our very own family members at home. As we communicate with these varied people through both the spoken and written word, we invariably will have miscommunications with them. Understanding the influence of the personalities on communication will not prevent all these problems, but it will help to greatly minimize them. When a communication problem does exist, the concepts in this chapter will help you find the root of the misunderstanding and know how to work to correct it. We can learn to communicate in the personality languages of others. If I speak Greek and you speak French, I can learn French or you can learn Greek so that we can communicate in something other than sign language or gestures. 
In the same way, if I speak Sanguinese and you speak Calericese, you can also learn each other's language to better communicate. So I love this chapter on communication because this is really putting things into action on a whole different level. This is saying, okay, this person A is a melancholy, person B is a phlegmatic. How do we go about communicating with these individuals based on our personality difference? And I'd actually really encourage everyone to make it a priority to read this chapter as well um, because it's going to break down if you're a popular sanguine what you can do to interact with a melancholy or if you're a powerful choleric what you can do specifically to communicate with a phlegmatic. A few important things that I want to hit on. The popular sanguine can work on limiting conversation, toning down the voice volume, learning to listen, and staying on track and, track and getting organized. For the powerful choleric, learning to be interested in others. Cultivate small talk. Ask rather than demand. Remember, clerics, your please and thank yous. Just a little plug in there. <laughs> Melancholies. Lighten up. Enter into a conversation, be more involved with people, think positively. For phlegmatics, get enthused, express opinions, right? If there's something that's important to you, speak up. Um, start expressing your, she says, start expressing your opinions about the things that do matter to you. By doing so, you will gain respect of others and open up the lines of communication. So it's really important that as we are breaking down what personalities we are, that we learn what pushes people's buttons, and what allows people to grow. I may not be able to control my husband, Taylor, but I also know the things that really get him triggered. And if I can avoid doing those things, then there is more peace in our home. We get along better and we eliminate conflict and also can have tough conversations because we're willing to talk about the hard things. Skipping over to the parenting chapter, again, since I don't have kids, I don't really feel like I'm very qualified to go into depth on my experience in this area, but I just want to read a couple things out of chapter seven. Marisha says, in 2000, geneticists announced the completion of a study to show what traits people inherited. Eye color, hair color, and body shape had been accepted for years as being inherited, but the most exciting discovery was the fact that children do inherit their personality. They are wired that way. The great physician Hippocrates pronounced this fact centuries ago, but now finally there was academic proof. What does this mean to us as parents? First, we need to determine the personality of each child and then train him or her accordingly. What that meant to me is saying, I have a sanguine child. These are different ways that I can help that child live in their strengths. I love in this chapter, Marisha breaks down if... What kind of parent are you? Are you the popular sanguine parent? Are you the powerful choleric parent? And she has charts on each of these as well so that you can see, okay, this is how it's, this is a situation that is going to be best that I respond in this way. I'm going to respond to my melancholy child in this way, but I'll probably act a little bit differently with my phlegmatic child. What I took away from this book was the same with anyone else that we interact with is that someday I will probably have a choleric child because I am a choleric or it's also very likely that I'll have a melancholy sanguine or phlegmatic child. But regardless of that, I 
can have tools out there. I can interact with people who have had children with different personalities and get perspective and advice from people who have have found to, to work with their children depending on personality. I want to end the parenting chapter by reading the last paragraph on page 185. Marisha says, God has made us all different on purpose. When we try to change our children instead of helping them to live in the strength of their personality, we basically say to them, excuse me, but I think God made a mistake when he created you. See, I have a better plan. You need to be just like me because I was created properly. We don't think that's what we're doing, but that's how it feels to them. Instead, let's take the time to listen so we can understand what makes our children tick. Once we understand our children's personality, we can then meet their emotional needs. And when we understand and meet the emotional needs of our own personality and those of our children, those results are amazing. We experience a freedom and an openness in our relationships on a level we never dreamed possible. Moving forward to chapter nine about personalities in the workplace. Marisha says, you pick your friends and pick your spouse, but when you are hired for a job, you are plunked into a group of people that you might never have chosen as friends, and yet you are expected to get along with all of them. For this reason, there are very few places where the understanding of the personalities is more important than in your workplace. Knowing the personality of your boss, coworkers, and customers can make the place where you spend most of your waking hours tolerable, if not downright pleasant. I just have to give a, a quick shout out to anyone who has ever worked with me in any uh, business, work environment, or even church to, for that matter. Um, anything that, that, that you had to work with me, being a, a choleric, I can be very intense at times, very task oriented, very, very driven to get things done. And rereading Wired that way. It was a great reminder for me. Sometimes, Sarah, I got to calm it down. I got to chill it out. And so I'm really grateful, grateful for people who have had grace with me and just been so kind to me, even probably when I haven't always been the kindest or the most easy to work with. Another reason that I loved this chapter is because Marisha's right where you spend so much of your time with people who you didn't maybe necessarily choose to to work with in the beginning and that can take a lot of work for people right when you're choosing when you're getting married you choose your spouse or your friend group in high school you choose the people who you associate with and while out of the workplace or whatever environment you work in you might gain a lot of really great relationships we also have to work with people who are might be very, very different than us and people who um, on a day-to-day -day basis we might not associate with. On a side note, my dog is chilling out with me here for a minute, so if you hear funny background noises, just know that Champ is, uh, Champ is here on this podcast today. So welcome, Champ, to the Growing Book Club. Uh, but but in all seriousness as well, I, I think that the more that we can embrace our personalities and recognize the embrace the differences of those around us you can create a, an incredible atmosphere regardless of the people that you work with and I think generally for Wired That Way it's important to remember that every personality is needed right we talked about this last week how if we didn't have phlegmatics the world would fall apart if we didn't have melancholies the world would also fall apart and so there is a need for every personality. And so if you work with somebody who, you, who you're wondering, how am I ever going to get along with this person? We're completely different. Remember that you guys need each other and that that person has some strengths that they can offer you in your life.
I want to wrap up book club this week by talking about chapter 10 on spiritual life. This was such an eye-opening chapter for me because after reading this, I realized that because each of us are different with our personalities, each of us are going to have a different connection with, with Heavenly Father in a different way. I I love how Marisha says this on page 238. Often when we hear the glowing testimonies of people who have found success by using a specific system, we all try the same system and then feel inadequate when we don't have the matching results. We feel that the failure must be because of a flaw in us, not in the proven plan. But as you see in this chapter, the personalities come into play here. There are different tools and techniques that will work more effectively for one personality type, while others will work better for someone of a different personality type. If one approach worked for everyone, we would only need one gospel. She's referring to the Bible, but in, or the New Testament, but instead God gave us four. Interestingly, each of the gospels has a different approach that lines up in such a way as to appeal to each of the personalities. Luke is the gospel for the popular sanguines. Luke was known as the beloved physician, and in his gospel, he stresses the concept of Jesus as Savior. Popular sanguines connect especially to these concepts of being beloved beloved, and of relating to Christ as their personal Savior. Luke fills his gospel with details of relationships, angels, and the pageantry that popular sanguines love, making Luke the longest of the four gospels. Powerful clerics connect more to the gospel of Mark, in which Jesus is portrayed as a servant. Mark is the shortest of the gospels, and powerful clerics appreciate how he gets down to the bottom line. It is a book of action and power, not of lengthy discourse that depicts Jesus as the mighty and authoritative son of God. In fact, the book of Mark uses the word immediately more frequently and contains more stories of miracles um, than any other gospel, than any of the other gospels. Matthew, which focuses more on Jesus as Lord and King, is the gospel for the perfect melancholies. Matthew was a reformed tax collector, and his book is filled with numbers, two sons, three servants, ten virgins. It is a book of order and uh, discipleship that was written with a mathematical cadence that only a perfect melancholy would notice. And the gospel of John was written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just how every every peaceful phlegmatic would want to be referenced. In John's gospel, Jesus is persuade, per- portrayed as the Son of God and the only source of eternal life. It is a book of assurance, love, peace, and trust. And it does not contain a genealogy or any record of Jesus' birth, childhood temptations, transfiguration, or great commission. What I love about this chapter is it, it gives different ideas of, if, for example, if you are more sanguine, Maybe when it comes to your daily studying of the scriptures, um, the word of God, that you take the time to form a study group, have people that you can be accountable to so that you can can talk about things. Um, if you're a powerful cleric, have things very neat, organized, time block um, so that you can get be very straight to the point, but then also recognizing that God's will is over you and your life and that he wants to be that main director. Um, it talks about if you're a melancholy, recognizing that melancholies are likely the ones to have things very neat and tidy in their scriptures, underlined, color-coded, and it's it's a good reminder, for example, to melancholies to let go and recognize that you don't have to be perfect, that you don't have to have it all together, and that God wants you as you are. I love the phlegmatics and what she talks about here is is recognizing that, that they they phlegmatics have a, a very natural way of of connecting with God in the sense that 
Uh, things are very peaceful. They are in a place that they can actually go to peaceful, quiet places out in nature. Uh, melancholy is very similar as well, but your environment as a phlegmatic is so important, recognizing that you need a place of total peace and serenity to be able to connect. My very favorite part of this entire book is at the end of chapter 10. I will leave that for all of you to read. But Marisha talks about the personality of Jesus and she says Christ's own personality contained the strengths of all four personalities and the weaknesses of none. And this was so beautiful for me as I went through and read about each of these and really realized that my relationship with my Heavenly Father and my Savior is so personal. And because of that, they have given me a personality that will allow me to connect with them in the ways that I need. And on page 264, Becoming Like Christ, Marisha says, In Jesus, we see that becoming Christ-like means striving for the strengths of all the personalities while letting go of the weaknesses. It is an impossible task, but what we see in Jesus is a good goal to strive for. In Ephesians 4, 22-24, we are told to put off our old self and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we surrender to Jesus, he begins to transform us into our authentic selves, exposing and removing the destructive parts of our weaknesses and helping us move toward unity in him. By understanding our personality strengths and weaknesses, we can develop our lives in accordance to the glorious riches from found in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, as we work on our personality, we become more Christ-like. What a powerful chapter, and I could go on and on about that one, but I will leave that up to you, my friends, as you continue on your reading. Now, I've kind of done a really big overview in future months. I'll break things out a little bit more each week, but due to the little surprise I'm putting together for next week, I felt that this would be the most fitting. So all of the homework is going to be posted on my Instagram page. Follow us at The Growing Book Club, but you can find the homework for today on pages 108, pages 128, page 185, and page 235. You can do all the homework, you can do one of these, you can do a mixture of them, but look out for details on my Instagram page to find those. But I hope that this has been helpful for people in understanding emotional needs, how to communicate and connect with people, and recognizing that when it comes to parenting, workplace life, or your spiritual walk, how you can fulfill your emotional needs and live your personality strength. Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you next Thursday.